0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, Conversations for Transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. We have Conversations for Transformation. Thank you so much for joining me for this teaching We here at Life Over Coffee exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. And I have a resource that I want to present to you over the next few moments, and the title of it is Practical Soul Care. How do we care for each other practically? I want to give you a biblical response to the Great Commission. The key verse that we'll be launching from in this talk is from Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20. All of you are familiar with this passage. We call this the Great Commission. This is Jesus talking. At the end of his life on earth, he said, "...go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that is the big idea here is that we want to teach others to observe all that Jesus has commanded. He finishes, finishes this great commission by saying, And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. And so, the big idea in this teaching lesson is how can church members effectively care for one another in Christ? The outline that I have for you is in five parts. Point number one, I want to talk about applying the Great Commission. The big question is does the Great Commission apply to you? Now, I am assuming that you are a Christian. Uh, this is my audience here. If you are not a Christian, I would encourage you to write us at Life Over Coffee. You can find us at lifeovercoffee.com and say that I am not a Christian and I'm curious as to how I can become one. And we would love to walk you through that. We'd love to show you how to become born again. But this talk is for the Christian community, and point number one is applying the Great Commission number two become the example of the goal point number three study the psychology book and number four study the soul and then finally we will wrap up talking about the differences between biblical counseling and biblical discipleship and so let's move on to point number one applying the Great Commission this will be the shortest point in the entire outline I have a simple question for you dear Christian Does the Great Commission apply to me? Does the Great Commission apply to you? This is a yes or a no answer. Now, depending on how you answer this question, well, it's not only going to set the course for your life, the trajectory of your life, but it will determine the quality of your life. This is a non-negotiable statement that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28. We are to go and make disciples. And I trust as you look at this question and answer it for yourself, you answer in the affirmative. Yes, the Great Commission applies to me. Now, if you say it does not, then you would have to make your argument. Why does the Great Commission not apply to a Christian? And so I trust that this is straightforward. I I trust that you have answered yes. Now, I'm not assuming that uh, you are full of confidence and that you believe that you have the ability to go out and make disciples, that you can lead someone to Christ and then teach this individual to observe all things that Jesus taught. I'm not assuming that at all, and that is why uh, I am doing this lesson here, because I want to I hope that I would not only instruct you Uh, but encourage you and envision you that you can go and make a disciple. I mean, even the woman at the well who knew Jesus for about half a minute, she went into the town and she began the work of evangelism and discipleship, and all that she could say was, come see a man. And that is where we all began. By the way, that is in John chapter 4, and that is where we all began. We don't know much, but That's really not the first question that we have to answer. The first question is, does the Great Commission apply to me? And if it does, then that begins a process to where we want to learn, more about our Bibles, we want to practicalize the Bible into our lives, and then we want to export what we have practicalized to other people. And that won't happen in a day. So I trust that what I'm sharing with you will be beneficial, that it will encourage, it will envision, it will instruct. And so to outline point number one, does the Great Commission apply to me? I trust that every believer that is watching this presentation or listening to the podcast that they're saying, yes, the Great Commission applies to me, and I have no argument otherwise. Tell me more, Rick. Well, let's move on to point number two. In the outline, it says, become the example of the goal. One of the mantras that we say here at Life Over Coffee is that the teaching uh, or the modeling of the gospel, rather, The emulation of the gospel must precede the teaching of the gospel, or we will sabotage the teaching, we will marginalize the teaching. What that means is, is that if we are not examples of the very thing that we are teaching, then we will dishonor God, we will discredit the message, and we will turn off those that we're trying to share the gospel with, either through evangelism or through discipleship. And so we must be examples. You are exhibit A of the message that you're communicating about Christ. By the way, everybody is an example. Everyone, lost and saved, Christian, non-Christian, we all are examples. And so the question is, what kind of an example do I want to be? Many of you have heard the The sad saying is a cliche, and there is truth in this cliche. It says, well, if that is Christianity, then I don't want anything to do with it. We do not want uh, to be the subject of that conversation. We don't want to be that person where they're looking at us and they're saying, well, if that is Christianity, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And where that happens probably more than any other place is with our children, uh, Christian or children of Christian parents or professing Christian parents, those who attend church meetings, and they attend church on Sunday mornings and Wednesday night and other contacts with a local church, but their lives are hypocritical. They live two different lives. They are one thing when they're around the church people and another thing when they aren't around the church people, and children have ingrown baloney detectors. They know that we're full of baloney if we are, and if we're telling our children to to follow Christ, to be a Christian, uh, to straighten up and fly right, but yet we are not flying right, then we disqualify ourselves from exporting the gospel to them. Therefore, all discipleship initiatives begins with the person who is teaching to be the very example of the thing that they are teaching. Whether it's a husband leading his wife, a wife being an example to the husband, the parents with children, friend to friend, workmate to workmate, it doesn't matter what the context are. We must become the example of the goal. Therefore, we want to model the message. In Ephesians 5, 1, Paul says that we are to imitate God. Now, what that means is God has given us communicable attributes. There are attributes that have been communicated or given to us, and we want to imitate God in the ways in which we can. As you know, there are incommunicable attributes like omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. We cannot do that, those attributes of God were not communicated or given to us, but there are communicable attributes like mercy, l- love, perseverance, self-control. Think, think of the fruit of the Spirit here. The fruit of Spirit, there's nine attributes there that really give us a portrait of who Jesus Christ is. Those are communicable attributes, and we can emulate those things in our lives. And so when Paul says imitate God, he's not talking about being all-powerful or all-knowing or everywhere at all times, but there are attributes of God that we can uh, possess and that we can emulate uh, to others, and so we can imitate God. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, it says that, well, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And what I like about this continuum here is that Paul inserted himself. Now, maybe you can look at it this way. As he's talking to the Corinthians, these are the mean people. And so he's talking about these nasty Corinthians. And he says, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. He is inserting himself in the continuum. You follow me, I follow Christ. Now, this is an excellent verse, like for a dad, as he's talking to his son or his daughter. It says, hey, daughter, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. The dad is not stepping outside of that line, but he's stepping in the line and telling the daughter or the son, look at me, and as you look at me, you will see an example of who Jesus Christ is, because you are emulating him. It is a powerful message for all parents, and of course, a, a wife should say that to her husband. Follow me as I follow Christ, and the husband say that to the wife, and of course, friend to friend, workmate to workmate. Another passage that communicates the emulation or the modeling or the imitation of the gospel is Philippians 4.9. In this passage of Scripture, Paul said that whatever you have heard and seen and learned and received from me, I want you to practice these things. And then he wrapped up this sentence with a promise. He said, if you do that, the God of peace will be with you. Now, this is a profound verse of Scripture. Everything that you've learned and heard and received and seen in me. I want you to practice those things. Imagine a dad saying that to his son or a wife saying that to her husband. Hey, husband, what have you heard and learned and seen and received from me, I want you to practice these things. And hubby, I, I promise you that the God of peace will be with you. That is a profound statement. Now, when people hear these emulation passages, uh, what I hear in response oftentimes is that, well, I'm not perfect. I can't emulate the gospel perfectly. I can't be like Christ. I can't be on every moment of my life, not making a mistake. And, well, uh, that's the beauty about being a Christian. Did you know we have a secret weapon? The Christian's secret weapon is the doctrine of repentance. We are the only people on the face of the earth that can actually repent, turn 180 degrees. This is more than a New Year's resolution. This is more than some promise that we make. No, this is a gift. Repentance is a gift from God. As we read in Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 25, God grants repentance. Uh, repentance is a spiritual gift. It is the Spirit of God illuminating spiritually quickened or made alive humans. As we see in Ephesians Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive. As we see in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, the natural person doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. Now, we have an ally in the Spirit of God who eliminates our minds because we have been made alive, and he will convict us of our sins, and we have the opportunity to repent. We can put off those that former manner of life. We can renew our minds, and we can put on Christ only Christians can do that. Non-Christians, well, they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They can promise. uh, They can make that resolution. They can Uh, do 30 days of this or that, but like a stain under a white paint, it will always come back because they do not have the power of the gospel operative in their souls. The spirit of God is guiding, guiding us by the word of God that we can actually transform. Now, why is that important when it comes to emulating or imitating the gospel? Because we're not imperfect, because we will fail One of the most blessed gifts that we can give to anyone, and let's just put that within a parenting construct here, one of the best gifts that we can give our children is to teach them how to change, to teach them how to repent. And so a dad could say to a son, son, whatever you've heard and learned and seen and received in me, I want you to practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And guess what? That dad's going to blow it. He's going to make a mistake. He's going to sin against his wife. He's going to sin against his child. And when he does, he has the opportunity to recalibrate, to get back in line with the gospel because now he can walk out repentance. He can confess that sin. He can ask for forgiveness. He can be reconciled to the child. He can restore the relationship. He can put off the behavior, renew his mind, and put on a new behavior. He can transform That is, One of the greatest gifts that we can give to our children. And so, what we want to do is we want to become the very example of the goal that we are asking others to become. And so, as we export the Great Commission to other people, we're going to do that imperfectly. But only those without the gospel who do not have hope, we have hope. When we make our mistakes, when we sin, we confess our sins. If we say that we have not sinned, we are liars. And this is what John was saying in 1 John chapter 1. And so we can own our sin and confess that and get back in line with the gospel. And so the big idea here in point number two is that we must emulate the message that we're teaching, that the, the modeling of the gospel has to precede the teaching of the gospel, or we will sabotage that message. And so as we look at these three passages here on the screen, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Ephesians 5, 1, and Philippians 4, 9, they all say a similar thing in different ways. Here's a picture of what it looks like. And so in the home, which is what I want to draw out for you here, the good news here is that no man is the leader of the home. The husband is not the leader of the home, but God is. And so the husband says, hey, follow me as I follow Christ, and so the husband is the functional human leader of the home, but he's under orders. He follows God. He is submitted to God, and then his wife follows him. Now, there's two things that are true at the same time. There is hierarchy, which is what I'm talking about here. There is God, and then the husband, and then the wife submits to the husband, and then the child follows the parents. That is the hierarchy But also, as you see on the screen, the husband and the wife and the child, they are equal. If they are Christians, they are absolutely equal in Christ. Now, both of those things are true at the same time. There has to be equality. Obviously, no person is better than any other human. What have you received, as Paul would say, that you have not been given, that was not given to you? And so we're all equal before God as Christians. But there's also hierarchy because the world can only function in hierarchical systems. And one of those hierarchical systems is the husband, the leader of the home, and then the wife, and then the children. But within a Christian construct, we know that that husband is following God, and that's the motivating factor of why the wife would want to submit to the husband and the children would want to submit to the parents. Of course the children want to submit to the parents because they are submitted to God. And so it is essential, as we're talking about practical soul care here, point number two, that we want to model the message and we need to be walking in line with the gospel, as you see here on the screen. Now, one of the things that we would have to do in order to become example of the goal is that I have been saying this already about the doctrine of repentance, the Christian secret weapon. You see, gospel-centered people have nothing to fear, nothing to protect, and nothing to hide. And so that means that we can get rid of our representatives, our PR person, our public relations person. Everybody has a representative of themselves. It is a carefully edited version, a carefully crafted version of themselves that they trot out into the public spaces, hoping that people will find their representative as more likable than the person that they know themselves to be. And that is our temptation as Adamic people. We're born in Adam. And part of what it means about being born in Adam, which I'll talk about in a few moments here, but it means that we struggle with shame, that internal awkwardness, not quite comfortable in our own skin. And because of that, there is a temptation to want to present ourselves as something that we are not. And so we have a representative. Hi, I represent Rick Thomas. And we can present ourselves in so many wonderful and glorious ways. Whatever whatever impresses us, we can project that as our image. You'll see this on socials regularly. Uh, people will only put their best foot forward. They will only put their best make make up face forward on social media. Uh, The ladies will put their best hairstyles forward. The things that make us look good, those are all representatives. Those are not the real people. Do not fall in love with the representative. You have to look beyond what you see on the screen. And in our church meetings on Sunday morning, we have to look beyond what is being presented to us. It is innate within us to present ourselves in another way. But as gospelized people, Again, we have nothing to fear, nothing to protect, and nothing to hide. We can dismiss our representatives. You can go on now. You don't need to represent me any longer. I'm going to present myself as I am. We have a song about that. It's called Just As I Am. I mean, it is amazing grace that we can present ourselves just as we are. Now, of course, as Christians, there is a thing called self-control. And discretion. Biblical discretion is important. And so there's two ditches here that we want to stay out of. Ditch number one, we want to dismiss our representative. We want to shake off the temptations, all temptations to hypocrisy. We want to be authentic. We want to be genuine. But in the other ditch, well, the fool reveals his entire mind. And so in the other ditch is a person who has no self control or biblical discretion, and they tell every person everything about themselves with no filter whatsoever. They don't know how to read the room. They have no social filter, and they just say all things to anyone. Well, that's foolish, and so we don't want to be foolish. What we need is at least one close, intimate friend, somebody that we can share our lives with, someone that could steward our truth because there is a stewardship issue here, All people cannot handle your truth. And so you do want to read the room. You want to have biblical discernment as you begin to share your life. The real issue here is is the motivation of our heart. Am I willing? Do I want to share my innermost self with at least one other person? Appropriately sharing, not inappropriately sharing. That is the big idea. And so we want to stay out of the two ditches. Ditch number one, I'm a hypocrite and I'm going to become a bigger hypocrite, and I'm going to really put the shine on my representatives so people will be impressed with me. Ditch number two, I have no social filter, no self-control, and no biblical discretion, and I'm just going to blab everything I know about myself, my innermost thoughts to anybody who will listen, and I'll put it on socials as well. Point number three, as we begin to model our message As we see in Ephesians 5, 1, Corinthians 11, 1, Philippians 4, 9. As we dismiss our representative, the next thing that we want to do is to make sure that we have clear sin categories because our temptation, and it comes with our representatives, is that we want to put ourselves in the best light, and that means, in part, that we're going to round the corners off of our sin, and that we're going to rationalize the things that we do, justify our actions, or blame them on other people. Because even when we do make a mistake called sin, when we do that, we'll take the sandpaper and we'll round the edges off so that it will sound better to ourselves and not sound so harsh to other people. Well, that's not how you repent. The way you repent is being very clear about what you do did, being very specific. You name it and you claim it. This is what I did, and we use biblical language. Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody become the word police or play whack-a-mole with someone that when they say the wrong word, you hit them over the head with a mallet. No, we don't want to be mean-spirited about it, but we want to be tenacious. We want to exercise theological precision, and part of being theologically precise Is having clean clean sin categories, and let me present an illustration of that with probably the most popular, commonly used infographic at lifeovercoffee.com. It's called our anger spectrum. The manifestations of murder is what I call it in James 4. James gives us this passage on anger. What causes quarrels? What causes conflict? He's asking a source question Where does your anger come from? Well, we know that our anger comes from our hearts, and that's not the part that I want to talk about here, though it would be an excellent study in those first three verses of James 4. He says, Is it not this? You desire and you do not have. You covet, and so you murder. James has one word for anger. He calls it murder. Now, when you recategorize all of or any of your anger manifestations as murder, then you're really bringing clarity to the situation. And it's obvious that you are serious about repenting because there are no rounded corners on that word murder. And the reason I'm using anger here, because it's one of our more common sins, it may be the most common sin that we commit behaviorally, sinful anger I'm talking about. And so we have an anger spectrum here. And on one side, as you see on the screen, we have what I call loud anger or volatile anger. And here is a partial listing of what that looks like. This is not an exhaustive list, and perhaps you have a loud anger in your toolbox. Then it's not here, on this list, and you're welcome to add it, but some of the things for those of you who are listening by podcast condemnation, yelling, verbal abuse, racism, hatred, boiling mad, sexual abuse, throwing things, flipping off, lecturing, road rage, cursing. These are some of the things that's on the vol- volatile side of the spectrum. And if you push loud anger as far as you possibly can to the left, well, it would be physical death or what James called murder that that is the physical worst manifestation of anger its physical death or murder now most christians do not commit anything that you see here on the screen or maybe from time to time a, a couple of the things but that's not really the habituation of the majority of christians But then there's another side to the anger spectrum that I call subtle anger, a quieter kind of anger, and here's a partial listing you see here, dismissiveness, stubborn, huffing under the breath, negativity, eye-rolling, harshness, gossip is a form of anger. It is biblical hatred uh, toward another person, cynicism, apathy. And if you push the subtle forms of anger as far as you can to the right, well, what you would have is the silent treatment, another form of murder. You see, physical death or murder, it says that I do not like you anymore. And so I'm going to disappear you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to remove you from the face of the earth. That's physical murder, and we understand that. If you push it to As far as you can on the right side of the screen, the subtle side of of murder, you have the silent treatment, the Christian version of murder. It says that I am a Christian, and so I'm a civilized human being, and I'm not going to physically kill you, but I am going to pretend that, that you do not exist, and that is the silent treatment. Now, our temptation here is that we can take any of these manifestations that we see on the screen, and that's how we can label our anger. Now, again, not being the word police, and there's really, there doesn't have to be anything wrong with it if we use any of these words here, but here is the problem. Our temptation is to polish our representative, and when we go into representative polishing, uh, we will round the corners off of our sin. We will not have clear sin categories, and if we don't have clear sin categories, what will happen is that after a while, our own sin issues will become imperceptible. We will harden our consciences, our co-knowledge, our inner voice. Conscience in the Latin means conscience, co-knowledge. Our internal moral thermostat. And if we harden our consciences by rounding the corners off of our sins, then we will become imperceptible to our sins and it will make it virtually impossible for us to repent. And so, again, we're presented with two ditches. One, we can be the word police and just be so critical or harsh about word smithing. And I'm not suggesting that at all. But in the other ditch is that we can we can soften our sins so much that we're not even aware that we're sinning anymore. Well, I was just frustrated. I'm just a little bit critical. Well, they were huffing under her breath. This person is dismissive. James would say, you murder. Because what he's saying here, you desire and you do not have, and so you murder. And that's what criticalness is. That's what every label on this screen is. And when we begin to label our sins correctly, then the conviction will be greater and the motivation will be power, more powerful to where we will want to repent. And so if we're going to export the gospel to other people, then what we have to do is to be a clear representation of the very thing that we want them to be. If we want them to, to model all things to observe all that Jesus taught, then we want to be the clearest representation of that that we can possibly be. Point number one, applying the Great Commission. I trust you said yes. Number two, become the example of the goal. I trust you're motivated to be that example. Number three, we want to study our psychology book, our guidebook, our guidebook is the Bible. The word psychology is a beautiful word. It is a Christian word, a Greek word made up of two words, psuche, or psyche, and logos. The word psychology means the study of the soul, literally, or the word concerning the soul. And you see it in the word psyche, logos, logos, the word or the study of. And of course, psyche is the soul. We have a rich logos family within the Christian community. Uh, I'm sharing some of these on the screen here that you're familiar with most of them, I'm pretty sure. Theology, Bibliology, Christology, Pneumatology, the study of the Spirit, Anthropos the study of humanity, Anthropology, Soteriology, the study of salvation, Hermioneology, the study of sin, it means to miss the mark. You're familiar with the mes- metaphor of missing the mark. That is the marksman with that bow and the arrow, and he shoots the arrow, and he misses the target. That's what sin is. We miss the target. Hermioneology, ecclesiology, the study of the church. Eschatology, the study of end times. This is a partial listing of our rich Lagos family, and of course, we have one other that I want to add, and that is Psychology the study of the soul. These are beautiful, Christian-rich words that give us the containers for understanding these various doctrines. And I would recommend that if you don't have a good ST book, a systematic theology book, that you get one. Talk to your pastor about an uh, ST systematic theology and it will cover all of these doctrines that you see here plus others and it would be well worth your study but we're looking at psychology right now Suke Logos, the study of the soul. Well, we know that in Genesis 2-7, God created the soul. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, the clay pot, the jar of clay, Adam, red man, man of the earth. Man was formed from the dust of the ground. God breathed into his nostrils. Here is God breathing into the nostrils of man, and he became a living creature or a living soul would be a proper translation that he became a living psyche. And so there's the first half of our definition of or our word psychology. And then in 2 Timothy 3.16, God breathed again. And so God is the architect of the soul. He created Adam, thus us. And then God created the word concerning the soul. In 2 Timothy, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And here's the sequence here. We'll look at it in a moment. But God's word is profitable for these four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God, so that we humans may be complete, whole, mature, equipped for every good work. And so with the Spirit of God operative in us, guiding us through the Word of God, We experience the purest form of psychology that there is. The greatest psychology book that has ever been written is God's Word. There is nothing better, nothing transcends God's Word. It is the ultimate psychology book. Because the world rejects our psychology book, they have created their own. It's called the DSM. The Diagnostic Statistical Manual right now is the DSM-5. They began about 1950, 1952 uh, with the DSM-1, circa, I'll say circa 1950, with the DSM-1. And it's been evolving all of these years. Well, for 2,000 years, we have the psychology book, and it has not evolved at all. But that is because the author is absolutely perfect, and there's nothing to add to it, nor shall we take anything away from God's Word. And so uh, we want to study the psychology book. If you want to export the Great Commission— through your life, and also through word, well, then you have to know the psychology book. And this leads us to this sequence that I was speaking of in Second Timothy 3.16. On the screen here, we see the four words that Paul used. He says that God's word is profitable. Number one is teaching, and that is how we change. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so we hear the word of God, either directly or extrapolated from uh, the Word of God, an application of the Word of God, an application that is situated in the Word of God, and we hear that. And that word, it convicts or rebukes or reproves us. Basically what it does, it hits the target here, as you see on the screen. It knocks us down, and that is what the Word of God does. Many of you remember when you were first born again, uh, you are agitated by the word of God. You heard God's truth and it was wrecking your soul, and you realize that you have a problem. It knocked you down. And God does not leave us down. He would never do that. And so the next step in the sequence, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and also for correction. The metaphor here is setting a bone after God knocks us down, after he reproves us. He sets the bone. He makes us right, and now we're turned in another direction. God's Word is profitable for teaching, for convicting, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can be complete, so that we can be whole. This is the four-step sequence. Uh, as far as what the psychology book will do for us. And as we study to show ourselves approved to God, we want to be able to export this. We want to be masters of God's Word, first being mastered by it, and then out of our example and our study of the psychology book, we begin to teach others. Now, as we teach others, point number four on the outline, what we want to do, not just be experts in the psychology book, but be expert in the soul. We need to understand each other. Now, what I want to do here over the uh, next couple of slides that I'm going to present to you, and by the way, again, those of you who are listening by podcast, uh, please go to Uh, lifeovercoffee.com. You're welcome to watch this one-hour video that I'm presenting here with the animations inside. It'll be more meaningful to you if you can uh, listen to this, uh, I mean watch this, and and see it as it's presented to you. And so make a note. I know many of you listen to the podcast as you run on the beach, as you drive to work, as you, one lady said, oh, I'd like to vacuum uh, while I listen to your podcast. And so I know you're doing many things, and praise God for the ability to multitask. But it would appeal to you that when you have a moment, that you watch the one-hour presentation because it will be more beneficial to you, and you can stop it and take screenshots. And I want you to capture some of these images that I'm presenting here. And so, in the next two slides, I want to uh, do a a deeper study into the psyche, into the soul, and. Uh, there's really no other way to get into it that, but other than get into it. And so this first one, this first slide is called The Anatomy of the Soul. And I want to talk about our number one problem. Our number one problem, that the number one thing that we struggle with as humans is, is self-reliance. As far as our personal struggles is self-reliance. Now, a synonym for self-reliance is, is unbelief. That's a synonym. Self-reliance means unbelief. Self-reliance, self-sufficiency, those are the same words, the same labels. But they mean the same thing. If you're a self-sufficient person, it, it means unbelief. You, you turn the word around, it's like self-esteem. You, you can define self-esteem by turning the word around. I esteem myself more than anyone else. It's a problematic label for obvious reasons. Well, self-reliance is one of those problematic labels. I am relying on myself. Now, that is that is pure grade idolatry. God does not want us to rely on ourselves. But this is what we saw in the Garden of Eden. It is our Adamic sin. It is our temptation to rely on ourselves rather than to rely on him who raises the dead. As Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In fact, in that passage, Paul was teaching us that these bad things happened to me. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. That God was was, he burdened us beyond our strength. And that is the key phrase. God will burden you beyond your strength because he wants to push you beyond your ability to take care of yourself. He he wants you to be able to say with all genuineness what Paul said in 4.13 of Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He doesn't want us to say, I can do all things through me who strengthens me. That's self-reliance. God will destroy our self-reliant constructs. He will push us beyond our strength. As Paul said, we were burdened beyond our strength to where we were despairing of life itself. But he explains why, that God was teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. Now, in order to pull off self-reliance, because self-reliance is actually delusional, it's psychotic, which is what delusional means, is it's an illusion along with delusional, Because the only way that you can pull it off is that you have to shrink your world down to bite-sized pieces. You have to shrink your world down to that which you can manage. You can only be self-reliant when you reduce your world into a space that you can control all things. And so if you can live within this hermetically sealed box, then it's a win-win. Sometimes people will see or experience people, you know, the lady in the office, she is so self-reliant. Sure she is, as long as she's working within her construct, as long as she stays within her box. But because so often we do not have a depth of insight with people, we don't recognize that that's full-blown idolatry. Yeah, she's self-reliant and very possibly an idolater. And if you want to know uh, if there's a problem uh, with her or any guy, it doesn't matter. If you want to know if there's a problem with them, then start pushing them outside of their box. This is what Paul was saying. This is why he was bringing a theological commentary to what was happening to them in Asia. I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. God had burdened us beyond our strength because he was teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. This is our number one issue. And God will come along to the lady in the office Or the gentleman who lives within his little self-reliant, self-sufficient world. And he will begin to push him outside of his ability to control the situation. And that's where he will feel lose-lose. And this is where God is teaching him to die to self. He doesn't want him to do all things through him who strengthens him. No, he wants us to do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And if we're living within that worldview, practically applied, then we can do more than we ever imagined. And, you know, it's kind of like the C.S. Lewis quote, I believe, as I paraphrase, that we were uh, far too easily pleased that we had rather spend our days playing in a, a mud hole which is what this self-reliance box is here on the screen, when God is offering us a day at the beach. But we had rather live in our own self-perpetuated universes, reputation management, being great in all things that we can do, But God loves us too much to let us stay there. And so what he will do is he will come along, much like he did with Peter in Matthew 14, as he was on the boat of self-reliance. And Jesus said, come, walk on the wild side with me. You'll have an experience with me that you can never have under your own strength. And so Peter did. He got out of the boat and walked on water. And even when he was sinking, He began to rely on Christ again, and he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached down and pulled him up out of the water. This is what God does for God-sufficient people. He will take care of you, but it is a walk on the wild side, and you will take on water, and you'll begin to sink from time to time, but you're walking with God, doing things that you could never do under your own power. And so this is a struggle that all of us have, no exceptions All eight-plus billion people in the world struggle with self-reliance. We had rather trust ourselves than trust God. And so if you want to help this individual, well, what you'll have to do is get underneath the surface of his life and identify his worship structure. The dotted line across the top of the screen, what's above, above ground, is the behavior, is what everybody sees. But if you want to help a person, well, help happens in the heart. It's out of the abundance of the heart that our, self, that our self-reliance operates, and so transformation happens in the heart, and so you have to begin to identify this person's worship structure, and so you want to get underneath the surface of their lives, and as you do, you'll begin to find a, a list, a stack of heart idolatries, and I'm going to list, list them for you here, in the order in which uh, you will experience them with the self-reliant person. And the first one is the idol of control. So now there's two idols that this person worships. One is their own reputation management, self-reliance. Number two is the idol of control. The reason the idol of control, well, it's, it's obvious. They have to control their world. That's why when they, they're beginning to be pushed beyond their ability to control, uh, that's the idea. And that's why control uh, is, is such a strong idol in this person's life. They have to control their world. We call them control freaks. That's probably a little bit too harsh, but they're definitely controllers. If you get underneath the idol control, you'll see the idol of comfort. They know what's comfortable for them, and once they identify what's comfortable for them, well, then they will control it at all cost, which, again, would lead to self-reliance. As you work toward the heart, what you will find is fear. Now, this is the irony of the self-reliant person. They appear to be strong and powerful and amazing, but really, they, they're, they're afraid, and out of that fear, they seek comfort. Out of that comfort, they seek control, and they're self-reliant. Underneath that are elements of hopelessness, and underneath that is shame, as I talked about earlier. The Isle of shame is that internal awkwardness. They're not comfortable in their own skin. That can lead to a hopelessness that metastasizes into fear, which motivates them for comfort, to control, to self-reliance. And then underneath the shame, you will find guilt, and underneath the guilt, you will find the tension. This is the real tension here between faith and unfaith, between belief and unbelief. Much like the gentleman in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And this is what you'll find amongst our type, many Christians, that we truly believe that we we have been born again. This is not a salvation issue. This is a sanctification issue, and so, very much secure in Christ, we have His alien righteousness, eternity, heaven is our home, but on the ground, on earth, we can operate like functional atheists, and that's where you get the statement: "Lord, I believe, help my unbelief." This is this tension between faith and unfaith. And if we're not careful, unfaith can rule the day. And as it does, well, then these idols will begin to stack up and we'll be living a self-reliant, a, a self-reliant uh, worldview and practice. Now, as God comes along and he begins to rock this totem pole that we see here, this worship structure, and our world begins to fall apart, as Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that we experience in Asia. I, I don't want you to be unaware why our world is falling apart. God is teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who us the dead. But when our world first begins to fall apart, what you will find coming out of the, the heart of this person, there'll be three things, typically. And the first one will be anger. Their world is falling apart, and they will respond in anger. Anger is the manipulative tactic of an insecure person who's trying to regain control of his world. Anger is an insecurity problem. It's powerful on the behavioral end. If you're in the line of fire, I mean, you experience the powerfulness of anger But as you address anger in the heart, sinful anger, what you're going to find is that it's an insecure person who feels like they're losing control of their world, and they use anger as a manipulative tactic to regain, to try to reorder their universe according to their liking. If their world completely falls apart, rather than owning it, in addition to anger, they will begin to blame. They will blame others why this happened. There has to be a commentary. There has to be an answer as to why it happened, and blame would be a common one. If they are not perceptible to what is really going on, as Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. Well, if they are unaware of what God is actually doing in their life, well, they will live in anger and blame, and their hearts will harden. And that's the sadness of, of this construct, this worship structure here, because they have a deeply rooted theological problem, and they don't know it. Every human in the world struggles this way, struggles with these idols to varying degrees. By the way, the person that I'm describing here, the individual that you're looking at on the screen, I'm actually, this is a diagnostic of Adam. This is the anatomy of Adam's soul. You see all this in Genesis 3, 6 and following. Once he chose to unfaith, once he chose to unbelieve, he experienced guilt, he experienced shame, then hopelessness began to stack on top of shame. Fear came quickly. He sought comfort through fig leaves and running and blaming. He he sought control of his world. In that moment, Adam became a self-reliant people. When we, a person, when we choose to not believe God and self-reliance, this is our worship structure. You see, we got this because, well, we're born in Adam, and so we all struggle with these things. One of the things I would want you to hear here is that there may be eight-plus billion people in the world, but none of us are different. None of us are different at the level of the heart, underneath the surface, which leads to the next graphic, 12 universal assumptions that you can make about anyone. There's no question that we all have a unique life. No two people are alike. We understand that behaviorally above ground. But transformation happens in the heart. And so when you're counseling people, we're talking about psychology here. We're talking about the study of the soul. And so what we do is we identify what is going on underneath the surface in the soul. And that's where all people are the same All people struggle with the same issues, and there are at least, there's more, but for the sake of this graphic, there are at least 12 universal assumptions that you can make about anybody, and that's one of the phenomenal things about the sophistication of the Bible. It can identify all of our problems. Uh, It can identify the things that are operative in our souls and give us solutions to work through those, and so you don't have to be omniscient where you know Everything about everybody, we just need to know one person, Adam. And everybody came from Adam. And so there are 12 universal assumptions that you can make about all people. I've already listed some in the previous slide that you see here. The one that you don't see here is hopelessness. And I've kind of folded that into fear and shame there for this slide. I expanded it in more of an accordion in the previous slide. Uh, But it's here in fear and shame. But here are some of the assumptions that you've already seen, things that we all struggle with, and then there are a few more. We all struggle with self-righteousness, looking down on other people, having an elevated view over some people, not necessarily all people. But our temptation is to elevate ourselves above people. Everybody struggles with self-righteousness, sexuality, anger, obviously. Fear of others. Insecurity, peer pressure, the world calls it peer pressure, codependency. And then finally, suffering. These are 12 universal assumptions that you can make about anybody. There are no exceptions to this rule. And so when you're helping people, you actually have insight into the suke, the psyche. You have insight into their soul because we're all the same. We're Adamic people. And then you bring God's word to bear, and with the Counselor, capital C, the Holy Spirit, uh, the unassailable ally working for us, in us, through us, as we're guided by God's Word. We're exporting our lives. We understand our soul. We understand their soul. We're able to help people in a sophisticated and practical way. Now, finally, in point number five of the outline, I want to talk about just briefly, the difference between counseling and discipleship. Now, I say counseling, biblical counseling, is an inferior model. I'm not saying it's unbiblical. not saying that at all. I'm just saying it's not as good as discipleship. It's not. And there are many reasons for that. And I've written much on this at LifeOverCoffee.com, and you can do a deeper study on the differences between biblical counseling and biblical discipleship if you wish. I would encourage you to do that by going to LifeOverCoffee.com. And so maybe a good way of thinking about the inferior model of biblical counseling, let's call it 1A and 1B. 1A is always discipleship. 1B is biblical counseling which most Christians never need. But discipleship, when it's operative correctly in a local church, that in itself will take care of almost all what would be biblical counseling situations. So biblical counseling, what it is, in most cases, is, is two strangers meeting each other, or it's two people who really do not know each other well. Uh, And that's that's probably 99% of all biblical counseling. And that there is a process because you do not know the person well. You meet for two hours in a formalized counseling context. And that could be once a week or it could be every two weeks or three. Now, I say two hours because that's how that's how long I have always met with people. I realize some people meet for an hour. That's even worse uh, because you don't have time to build that relationship with the person and to help them in a more effectual way. And that's why I've always traditionally met people for two hours. That's not great. But it's far better than one hour, and you'll do that once a week, every two weeks. You'll do it for a short season. Maybe six times, 12 times, 18 times. There's no rule here, but it is a season of counseling. It's not a long-term relationship. And then the biblical counselor will go away. And what happens so often is that the problems begin to resurface in the person's life. And that is biblical counseling, unless they are part of a superior model. A superior model of discipleship or the discipleship model. This is where two people are really walking the same path. They're on a very similar journey. They attend 52 church meetings a year on Sunday morning. They're part of a small group. They do life over coffee, as you all should. They do hospitality. They have special events. Uh, They minister together. They email and text each other and talk on the phone. They babysit their babies. They go on vacation together. They grill out. On Saturday afternoon, they go to the ball game, and there's a hundred other things that you could add to this list when we're talking about discipleship. These are people who are doing life together, and they have multiple contact points, and every contact point is not, will you repent? That's not every contact point. That would be tedious every time you met somebody, will you repent? No, these are opportunities to build a relationship and to build a relationship, a relational bridge to someone, and to go from superficial to deep. And you can do this in a non harried way, and you, you can let the game come to you rather than forcing yourself on the game. The discipleship model is a far superior model than biblical counseling in virtually every way. It's intentional intentional, multiple contact points, weekly, monthly, yearly, in the milieu. The milieu are the social environments in which people meet. It is New Testament discipleship, a far superior model to biblical counseling. Again, I'm not saying biblical counseling is wrong. I'm just saying it's 1B. It is not 1A, and so we have a high view of the local church here at Life Over Coffee, and we believe that discipleship is the way, and in almost all cases, it will take care of any biblical counseling needs. We talk about body-to-body ministry. This will be our last slide here. I'm inverting what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, He said, "...bad companions corrupt." Well, we say good companions actually build up. And so let's say that a person does come for personal counseling. It's not necessarily wrong. And then they have a discipling friend who comes alongside them. They're building other friendships within their local church. They're doing homework-specific things, to whatever they're struggling with. They have personal devotions. They're fellowshipping with the, uh, the body of Christ, a uh, community life. They're attending the church meetings, whether that's the corporate meeting on Sunday morning, men's meetings, ladies' meetings, Bible studies, etc. There's a zillion of them. They're in family, familial engagement, family worship, and they're serving other people. I will say that most of the people who come to receive biblical counseling are not doing these things. And typically, that's why they're looking for biblical counseling, because they're not engaging their local church. But as they do body-to-body ministry, there's one thing on this list that can disappear, and it's biblical counseling. One B can go away, and these other good companions stay. And you can add to this list. It's not an exhaustive list. But a person who is engaged in their local church at this level will rarely, very rarely need biblical counseling And they're actually doing New Testament discipleship. They're modeling the Great Commission, and they are exporting the Great Commission to one another. This teaching, thank you so much for listening to it, is is practical soul care. I would ask that as I wrap up here that you would pray for our ministry. Follow us on all the socials, wherever you are. Share us, and if you're able to support our ministry, please do that. Some of you may want to consider our Mastermind program. It's our all-online training school. You can find that information at Life Over Coffee. It's a two- to three-year program if you do it consistently and regularly. We do a deep dive into all things. Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, perhaps the Mastermind Program, would be good for you. In this webinar, Practical Soul Care, we looked at applying the Great Commission, becoming the example of the goal, studying the psychology book, study the soul, counseling versus discipleship, the big idea, how can church members effectively care for one another in Christ. Practical Soul Care, a biblical response to the Great Commission. My name is Rick Thomas. I appreciate you so much being part of this presentation. And again, you can find me at lifeovercoffee.com where we have conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.